for y'all that didn't hear this morning, uh, we have, are going to be privileged to have another Eastridge in our midst. When the word Reverend Eastridge is spoken in this church, you've got a choice of three. <laughs> a number of you asked if this was my second blessing I spoke about last week. No, it's my third. <laughs> in fact, I just learned of it this morning when most of you did. I knew that she had been considered, but I was under appointment for 40 years. And I know that nothing is definite until the cabinet gets together and makes the appointments. And they met last week, and it was made then firm. I'm delighted personally that she's coming. I can't take credit for the quality of person that she is. So when I speak of what she'll be bringing to Munsey, it's not boasting because I had nothing to do with it. I got her by marriage. <laughs> now Brian said, stepdaughter. Now Carly's going to be surprised. <laughs> to have a daughter older than you are. <laughs> Nancy was reared in a Baptist home. Her father was a Baptist minister. Her grandfather was a Baptist minister. Her brother is a Baptist minister in Kingsport. She was a nurse and uh, for a number of years practiced her nursing in Memphis at St. Jude's Hospital, and then she said the kind of circumstances in which she was working sick children, after a while you have to break away from it, it just, the emotion is too great, and she felt the lure of becoming a lawyer, feeling that through law she could serve as she did as a nurse. And as you know, she was with the most prestigious law firm in Kingsport for a number of years. And then she married Mike. Mike made a Methodist of her. <laughs> and her mother said to me, Nancy got a call to the ministry when she was a teenager. But being in a Baptist church, there was nothing she could do about it. <laughs> and when she became a Methodist, Nancy said to me, I was a Methodist all my life and didn't know it. <laughs> so with that freedom, she responded to her call and has done a magnificent job. She's just coming out of seminary, and it's quite unusual for your first appointment out of seminary to be of this stature. But for the last two years, Nancy has been the minister of evangelism at the university church at Emory University. When she had her surgery this fall, I was talking to Mike on the phone, and he said, Nancy owns Emory University. <laughs> when she was having her surgery, he said, I felt like it was an annual conference. The bishop in residence was present. Four faculty members were present. The entire ministerial staff at Glen Memorial Church was present. He said the room was packed with ministers who came to give support. She made that kind of an impact at Emory University and will on this church. I say that because I have no right to boast. I have nothing to do with who she is, but I'm extremely proud that she's coming Amen. to Munsey Church. Well, she is. I 
Oh, she's coming to Muncie as uh, Minister of the Sacro Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you need to be mentioned. Some people might not know it. Of course, Laura Joe is getting her own church. Yes. Now, Laura Joe is, I spoke to Laura Joe this morning. Laura Joe is not being moved. She asked for a church of her own where she would be senior minister. And she told me, so I guess I can tell you that she's going to First Church Elizabeth. So this is quite a quite a church for her there. Now, if I wasn't supposed to tell that, you didn't hear me say it. <laughs> Listen, for 40 years, I went through the appointed process, and I know what a trauma it is. And it's... When I first entered the ministry, you were told on Sunday afternoon when conference was over, the appointments were read, and you got in your car and drove home. That's the first you knew of where you were going. Well, Rex is, is getting his, you know, what they do before they're ordained. And is he going to have a church, or has he been appointed? Who? Rex. Rex. Uh, Rex uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. I wondered about that myself. Times, they are a-changing. Well, on to our lesson today. If you were to distill everything that we have studied in the first letter of John into one word, it would be love. Love. If you were to distill the gospel of John into one word, it would be love. If you were to take Christianity and distill all of Christianity into one word, it would be love. Love is the most powerful force in the world today. John said that God is love. We are to love God. We are to love one another. And we are to love in every facet of our lives, loving our enemies, love those who have wronged us, Love everyone regardless of who they are. And that is a difficult objective. It's hard to love people who are unlovely. And we all know unlovely people. And we cannot love people of that nature on our own. But John tells us, Paul supports us, we cannot love in the sense of agape unless we receive that love as a gift from God. Without the gift of love from God through the Holy Spirit, we cannot love on that level. Those who have not chosen to follow Christ cannot love agape love. We have chosen to follow Christ Love with agape love because that is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that there are many gifts that we receive through the Holy Spirit. The gift of prophecy, the gift of healing, the gift of tongues. You're aware of the many gifts that Paul 
talks about, these are specifically gifts of the Holy Spirit. We are not born with these gifts. We receive them from God through the Holy Spirit. And after he has enumerated all of these gifts that are available to us, then Paul says, and the greatest of all of these is the gift of love. And it's easy to see why. Because agape love empowers all of the other gifts that we possess of all of the other aspects of our nature. You cannot love to the extent of agape, God's love, unless the Holy Spirit has given you the power to do that. And let me illustrate it. Martha was a young woman who became a Christian in her teenage years. And as she thought about what she wanted to do with her life, she was drawn closer and closer to a church vocation. She went away to college to train. And while there, she came under the influence of a missionary to Africa. And the more she learned about the needs in Africa, the more she felt a call to go to African missions. She made a commitment of her life to become a missionary, not knowing really what nature it would take. And then she was in a seminar and she learned about a leper colony in Africa. The speaker coming from that leper colony said, it's almost impossible to find people to come and nurse the lepers because it is so contagious, it is so fearful, few are willing to take those chances. But we're in desperate need of workers to come and work in this leper colony. Martha felt a tug within herself that this is what God wanted her to do. And so she talked at length to the representative from the leper colony. And then she made a pledge. She would be that person that they needed to go to that leper colony and give her life to care for the lepers. She told her family of her plans and her friends. The day came when she was to leave and her friends and her family went to the airport to see her off. As she stepped onto the plane, her best friend gave her a big hug and said, I wouldn't do what you're doing for a million dollars. And Martha answered, neither would I. <laughs> Love is that magnetic force that pulls us to those things which God wants us to do. Not because we necessarily want to do it as a choice, but a choice made upon the fact that this is what God wants me to do and I'll answer his call. The same sort of thing happened to Mother Teresa. Everybody knows the story of Mother Teresa. What can you say about Mother Teresa that any of you doesn't already know? That she was born to middle-class parents. Her father was a merchant. And she, being Roman Catholic at a young age, decided she wanted to be a nun. And so she grew up ready to train to be a nun. And then she joined a group of nuns in India. They were a group of Irish nuns. 
and she was accepted by the group and giving a teaching position because of her training, because of her abilities, she was a good choice to teach in a Catholic school in India. For 17 years, she taught the little Indian children. She was so adept at her job that she was made principal of the school. And after 17 years, it was discovered that she had tuberculosis. And she had to leave the school, and as she went away to recuperate from her illness, on the train, she said, God spoke to me and said, when you are cured, I don't want you to go back to the school. I want you to go down into the streets where the little children have nobody to teach them. And she did. She went into Calcutta, the poorest part of Calcutta, and there she gathered the little children who had no chance in life. And there she taught them, as she had taught in the school of the upper class. And while she was there teaching the little children, living there with the untouchables of India, she saw people lying on the street, dying in the street because they had nowhere to go, in filth, in poverty, dying as people walked by them, ready for somebody to come and remove their bodies. And she got a group of her students, and they rented a room. And whenever they found someone dying on the street, they would take them to that room, wash their bodies, put clean clothes on them so that they could die with dignity. And that caring spread throughout all the city and ultimately to all the world. She opened the first clinic for AIDS patients. She began to work toward world peace. She was so involved, but she never left the slums of Calcutta. She told a friend one day, I had a dream last night. I dreamed I died and went to heaven. And St. Peter met me at the gate, and he said, what are you doing here? There are no slums up here. <laughs> she belonged to the slums. That's where her heart was. And she received the Nobel Peace Prize. When they planned a big banquet, as they do all who receive the Nobel Peace Prizes, she said, how much is this banquet costing? And they said, $6,000. And she said, cancel it. I won't be here. Take that $6,000 and give it to the children of Calcutta. That will feed hundreds of children for a year. She received the Presidential Medal of Honor, the highest honor that America can bestow upon a citizen. The church honored her with preparations toward her becoming a saint of the church. When she went to receive her Nobel Prize, she wore the sari that she wore in the streets of Calcutta, clean. She was immaculately clean, but she wore the clothes of the impoverished. Cost her one dollar on the rack. And before the important heads of all who all over the world came for the presentation of her honor, the Nobel Peace Prize, she stood before them in her $1 sari that draped her body. Not many can measure up to that kind of commitment. <coughs> this is not easy to do. This is not normal for any of us. It is agape on the highest level, and only few who are called to that depth of service. A few years ago, I attended a national convocation on evangelism. One of the speakers was a Methodist minister from India. 
He said that he was one of the high officials in India. He was born in the upper class, upper caste, lived in a magnificent home, and had one of the top political positions in all of India. He said, I never went down into the parts of the city where the untouchables were, because if their shadow fell upon us, we were unclean. We didn't want to look upon them when they're squalor. And one day his chauffeur made the wrong turn, and before they realized it, they were driving down in the back streets of Calcutta. And he said as they were trying to get out of that part of the city, they came upon an American car sitting beside of the road, a late model luxury car, and a woman was standing there on the sidewalk dressed in expensive clothes, holding a little child in her arms and had her handkerchief out. The tip of her tongue would moisten the handkerchief and she would wipe away the dried seepage from that child's eyes and occasionally would pull the child close and kiss her on the forehead. And he said, I had to, my chauffeur stop. And I went over to her and I said, why are you doing this? And she said, this is a child of God and it has no one to take care of. I can't do anything else. He said, are you a Christian? And she said, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. He himself was Hindu. He said, I said to myself, there's no Hindu I know that would do this even among their own people. And here is a foreigner who is a Christian doing what she does. I want what she's got for my religion. And he began to study Christianity. And he became a Methodist minister. He said, I would still be a Hindu today if I, my chauffeur hadn't got lost and take, took me onto a back street where I saw love of God in action. This is agape. Agape is the highest love that we can experience. We're familiar with the fact that in the Greek language there are different variations of love and a name by which each is called. In English, we only have the one word love, and we apply every time that love in any form is spoken, we use the same word. But agape is the highest form of love. It is the love of God. It is the love that came, comes into our lives from God by the gift of the Holy Spirit. I love my family. That comes as a surprise, doesn't it? You know, I can't help but smile when I think about my family. I love every member of my family. But I didn't do it because I received a gift of love. It was a natural relationship that developed with my family. And there's Philia. I can say with that hesitation that I love every person in this room. Unreservedly, I love every person in this room. It isn't a gift of God. It isn't a family relationship. It is philia, which is a love that normally reaches out to everybody else because it is the nature to love. But agape is that depth of love where you love the unlovely, where you love those who have done wrong to you. It is that love that only God can give. It comes only to those who have accepted Christ to follow in his ways and accept the gifts of the Spirit to use.
Paul said that love is an empowerment of all the other gifts that we have. He said, we put a premium upon worship. We tell ourselves repeatedly that worship is one of the noblest things that we can do in our relationship with God. I love to worship. I love to take communion. And when they gave me a chance to write on my card this morning whether I wanted to take it every week, I wrote in big block letters, yes. I love worship. I love to come in the presence of God. But Paul said, you can worship you can sing, you can raise your arms, you can do everything that comes about in worship. But if you do not have agape, it is nothing but clanging cymbals and sounding brass. He said, if I give all of my possessions away to others and I become impoverished myself, give everything that I have, if I do not have agape, it's of no use. If I even give my body to be burned, sacrifice my life, if I don't have love, it's a wasted life. Nothing good comes from it. In reading those words of Paul, I was reminded of those in the Middle East today who sacrificed their lives for their religion but there's no love there. They do it thinking that because I give my life in this way, I will inherit eternal life for myself. What a misrepresentation of what God wants out of us. He wants love. You don't kill people if you love. Paul said, you can give your life as a sacrifice, but if you don't have love, then it comes to naught. He enumerates what love does in changing the life of a person. We're all born with natural instincts and ability to love in eros and aphilia. But when it comes to spiritual love, agape, it changes our lives. When Jesus said you must be born again, he wasn't using words that had no meaning. When we follow Christ, our whole attitude changes. Our relationships change. We become different persons. And we're able to love because agape is a gift of love given to everyone who follows Christ. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he gave 15 changes that comes into a person's life when they love. You're familiar with them? Fifteen's too many for me to enumerate to you. Now I take up the rest of my time. We go to 1 Corinthians 13 and you can read them. But out of all of that, he says, we became changed persons because love makes us want to forgive people Agape love makes us want to be humble. Agape love makes us want to not store up hostilities, but to forgive. It's a natural part of living with God's love in our lives. <coughs> Harry Emerson Fosdick told about Abraham Lincoln and Edwin Stanton. When Abraham Lincoln became president, one of his greatest critics was Edwin Stanton. 
Edward Stanton said he is nothing but a comic clown. He's the original gorilla. While we have explorers going to Africa to find gorillas, I don't know. They have to go to Springfield, Missouri, and they can find the original gorilla. He's an insult to American politics. Abraham Lincoln heard every word. And when he was elected president, he knew the man who was best qualified to lead the country as the war secretary. And he tapped Edwin Stanton. In spite of everything that had been done, he chose a man whom he knew to do most for the country. When Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Fosdick said, Edward Stanton stood at his side as his body lay there. And he said, this man is the greatest ruler that the world has ever known. Quite a transition. And it was all because of love. Paul says, without love, everything else becomes meaningless. With love, we are fired up to live. Claim God's gift of love because it's life-changing and life-giving. Now this winds up our series on the letter of John. Are there any questions on today's session or any previous session that you'd like to raise or a comment you'd like to make? Yes. You made a comment last week on love that it's hard, some people are hard to love. And um, I feel guilty sometimes because we do things uh, for these people and some of them don't seem to appreciate it or they want more, or they ask more. It's just a struggle sometimes to love people that aren't lovable. And that's why they're unlovable. <laughs> if they weren't hard to love, they wouldn't be unlovable. <laughs> it's hard. It's not easy. If it were easy, then it would not be a factor at all. You just love everybody. I was a member of Kiwanis Club and ever city I lived in. I was a member of the Qantas Club, except in Johnson City, and I was a Rotarian here for the simple reason that uh, every downtown minister was a Kiwanian, wasn't a single downtown minister in the Rotary Club. And I said, that's just not right. <laughs> and a member of my church was president of Rotary, so he said, come on over. And for this one brief time, I was rotating. For all of you Kiwanians, I went back to Kiwanis when I left Johnson City, went to Oak Ridge. But the point is that the Kiwanis Club almost invariably everywhere provides baskets at Thanksgiving for underprivileged people. In one of the clubs in which I was a part, one man says, well, I'm against taking any food baskets anymore. I was a part of delivery last year, and we came to this hovel, and there was a lout of a man sitting inside the door, and he just watched us as we walked up to his door, and we told him while he was there, and he said, well, bring it in. And we went back to the car and carried it in. He said, you put it on the table there, put it on the table. Left, he didn't say one word of thanks. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't think we ought to help people like that. He needed it more than anybody else. 
And when we act out of agape, that's why we want to help people like that. I had one man when I was at Newport who called up and said, I'm expecting company this Thanksgiving. I'd like to double my Thanksgiving basket. <laughs> and gave certain items that he wanted added to it so it would be a bountiful meal. <laughs> the world is filled with unlovely people. <laughs> but with agape, you know you're doing the right thing. Yes? One of the things that I found that has worked so fast just in dealing with You made a very strong point there, and I'm glad you did. We have to stoke our gifts. We don't take the gifts and then all the hills are leveled, but we stoke our gifts with prayer and with spiritual strengths that come to us in fellowship with one another and the like. The difference in those who have love as a spiritual gift and those who do not is that we want to do it and we'll find a way to do it. Without agape, you don't want to do it. You just cast them aside and go on your way. They're undeserving. That's it. Life is not easy to live as a Christian. It's demanding. And many times you have to stoke that fire real good. But the fact is you want to. And as long as you want to, then you have the power coming into your life. Well, I've taken up five minutes that didn't belong to me. Where are you? There you are. He moves around. I keep you on your toes. Thank you, Vance. 